Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Have you ever wondered what it takes to write a great work of fiction? To create a world of characters never before seen or heard, perhaps in a place that doesn't even exist, except in the mind of the author? Recently, I read such a book and found myself asking, how in the world did the author do that? Fortunately, that same author, Max Gross, agreed to be on the podcast. His book, The Lost Shtetl, was published last year and is an immersive, unputdownable book about an imaginary Jewish town called Kreskel. In the year 2020, Kreskel had survived the Holocaust and World War II without being discovered and, as if it had been hermetically sealed, was unchanged and unaffected by the passage of time for centuries. It is simultaneously hilarious, heartbreaking, and because it was so well thought out, Max made it entirely believable. It received rave reviews from media outlets as diverse as USA Today, Vogue, and Kirkus Reviews. It was also widely loved by my book club and has become one of my favorite novels. So join Max and me as we explore the world of a fiction writer and how an entirely new world emerges from the writer's mind. Max Gross, welcome to Super Psyched. And I am super psyched to be here. So happy to see you. I (laughs) fell in love with your book upon reading its description. I chose it as my selection for my book club where it was well-loved. I've got to ask you, One of the things that just led me to thinking I've got to interview this guy is that you created an entire world in your thoughts, topography, a history that never before existed. And I'm aware that with fiction, sometimes people can kind of borrow from reality. In your case, the vast majority of what was written was entirely a product of your imagination. And I just wanted to ask you if you could describe the process of birthing a work of complete fiction as you did to create people that have never seen the light of day. To the best of your ability, can you describe where that even came from? Well, I could tell you where the idea for the book came from. Maybe I'll get to that later. But, you know, when I'd say I got like, you know, the premise for the book, it's about a little shtetl in Poland that is so hermetic and removed that nobody knows it exists and the Nazis don't know it exists. And so it escapes World War II and it escapes the Cold War and it's rediscovered in the here and now. Yeah, and that was, I thought, one of the primary missions when you start a work like that is it's going to be a mosaic. It's going to include a lot of different people and you have to think about that. And I will tell you, Adam, that when I came up with the book, I started a few drafts that were very flat. And it wasn't until I started really thinking about the characters very closely that I thought it became a lot more interesting. Um, Also, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by starting out this way. The main protagonist, well, there's two main protagonists. One of them is a a woman 
who was in a very abusive marriage in the shtetl. And she's married to a monster who eats her up and who's just, just an absolute vile person. And before I had met the beautiful and intelligent Mrs. Gross, my wife, I had actually dated a woman who was a former Hasidic Jew. And she had been living in that sort of uh, life as somebody who was in a very horrible marriage she eventually got divorced from. And that sort of planted a seed in my head of, oh, that's a you know, real big meteor to hit this town. There would be like some sort of rupture from the past. And obviously divorce was always part of Jewish heritage, but even back in the Middle Ages, there was divorces, but it was also a certain amount of social stigma attached to it. Not like it is in a lot of other countries and cultures, but it was always something. And um, I thought that was an interesting way to begin. And she, the character of Pesha, who's the main female character, just sort of formulated in my mind. Someone around this woman I had dated, someone around my wife, someone around a couple of other women that I knew, who I was able to think about how would they react if they were transplanted into that kind of life and that place and location. It was one of the fun parts of the book is drawing from all sorts of different kind of things. Because you look at, I always say that, Sort of the premise of the book is the old saw, two Jews, eight different opinions. Um, you know, there is so much variety and disparate thinking in the Jewish people. We're very opinionated people. We wander towards extremes. So it was a lot of fun to play with that. Like, you know, what would be various reactions to being discovered, which the town of Kreskel, which is the main town in this book, happens. Like, so... What are the eight different opinions in one guy and what are the eight different opinions in another person and, and all that stuff? So there was a lot of thinking that happened. I should tell you, Adam, that when I turned in the first draft of this book to an agent, who is not actually the agent that I wound up representing me, but preliminary agent, she really liked it. She said, you know what? You have too many characters. <laughs> and so... Actually, there were a few like characters who didn't make it to the final draft because I, I thought she was right. There were, there were a little too many. You had to kill some of your darlings. I had to kill some darlings for sure. Thinking about that, though, in preparation for this interview, I was reading some great quotes by Game of Thrones author George R.R. R. Martin. And one of them that surprised me that informed him was go with what you know. And I couldn't have imagined that he would have been able to stretch what he knew from real life to create his fantastical work any more than I could have imagined that you had done the same with, for example, Pesha and that she had come from your real life and that you had gone with what you knew. To some extent, your wife <laughs> and an ex-girlfriend informed a lot of who this character would become and some of her struggles and I'm guessing various strengths that she possesses. And I'm guessing that was true for a great many of the characters that some of them had a little bit of DNA shared with people in your life, whether they know it or not. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I haven't talked to this ex-girlfriend, so I might be getting myself in trouble by even <laughs> No, I'm not saying your name. <laughs> it wasn't you, you know, Phyllis, it was somebody else. But no, I think so. And look, I think every author, to a certain extent, is also writing about themselves and their reactions, or certainly how they could react, if nothing else. So, you know, I mean, I think there's a little bit of me in Kesha, too. And I think that there's more of me in the main character of Yankel, who I think, I'm certainly not a yeshiva 
boy who was an orphan and all these other things. But I thought that a lot of his reactions were close to my heart. I think that he's a, probably a nicer person than I am, but he was, <laughs> you always try to lionize the characters that you think of as based on yourselves anyways. Right. I, I think that there was some of that and there was some of me and him. Some of them were very made up. You look at some of the characters, there's extreme Judaism in some of these characters, some who like really reject the modern world because it goes against all of their sense of tradition and all their sense of, you know, security and all these other things. And to a certain extent, some of those characters were lifted from, yeah, look, I lived in Israel for a year. I've met some like, you know, pretty fanatical people over the course of my life. I wrote for the forward. That was my first job in journalism. So I've, I've met some forward is a, is a publication. Correct. Yes. So you, you have Uh, surrounded by Judaism. And yet one of the interesting things that I have come to know about you is that historically you've been a secular Jew and that you have kind of brought these new aspects of your identity forward a bit later in life and have probably needed to do a lot of research and educate yourself to write at this level, because this is a book that could have been written by one of the 19th century Jewish great writers who was inundated with Judaism, and yet you are a secular Jew who is largely self-educated. And I imagine you would, I don't know if you continue to describe yourself as secular, but. Oh, no, I am. I'm pretty secular. I mean, look, you know, it's obviously a very important part of my identity and the secular part doesn't lessen my incredible interest in the more observant side. But no, I'm a pretty secular person. I married another Jewish person, but we're, our son, like I think his favorite food is bacon. We're pretty blasphemous about a lot of things, (laughs) but it is true. I grew up in a pretty secular house in Brooklyn and, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of Jewish people, but we didn't take the rites and rituals all that seriously. But you know, my parents, I would say, took the history pretty seriously. So there was a great deal of books in my house about the Holocaust, about World War II, about Israel, the founding of the state of Israel. And there was a lot of books about the German Enlightenment and the Jewish role there and the books about like Kafka and Einstein and whoever else you want to mention, who we always go to as our figures of a fan club, you know, of, <laughs> of Judaism. So I think that I was interested in it. But when I went away to college, I think there were a few, you know, instances in my life where I got like a lot more involved in it. And, you know, I would say that there was a, when I was a, like a, a kid, like 13 or 14 years old, maybe even a little younger, I was at a friend's house, a family friend's house. And I came across Gimple the Fool, mm. the Isaac the Sheva Singer um, story. And it was a very formative story for me. I thought that it was so filled with so many hidden things. Like I saw like it's a Hasidic Polish world, but there's so much carnality underneath the surface. Everybody is a little bit deceptive. And you you see a pious person on the street and you just assume all of these things about them (laughs) that are not there. They're an illusion to a certain extent, which is like, you know, I think the case with everybody, everybody has these layers upon themselves and a mask that they wear to a certain extent. And there was a a moment as a child where I was like, wow, that applies to the pious as well. And that was a very interesting thing for me. But I grew up in Brooklyn. I went to a school called St. Anne's, which was not a religious school. I should have had, but it did have have that title. of. (laughs) Um, And when I was at St. Anne's, where everybody was Jewish, by the way, 
it was a school that was very focused on things like learning the classics, learning literature, learning all these mm-hmm. things. But I was in that environment of a lot of Jews around me. And so that I put away to Dartmouth for my undergraduate education. And suddenly Jews were a lot scarcer than they were at St. Anne's School in Brooklyn. And it made me reach out. Like I was cast into this like New Hampshire wilderness. It wasn't like, you know, Creskel exactly, but I was in the right. middle of nowhere in this very rural environment. And, you know, I was surrounded by people who were very different from like New York Jews. And I sought out some of the ones I went to Hillel, but it really made me yearn for something that I had back in Brooklyn that I didn't have in New Hampshire. So after college, I went to Israel and lived there for a year. And went in a very fraught time because so I, I went in late 2000, which is like a month into Intifada 2. So it was a very, as I say, fraught moment to be in Israel. And you know, I stayed there for a year. And it was an experience that was very important to me. And I came back, I started working at the forward. And yeah, you're right. It was a very self, it was, it was self-education. I wasn't a great Hebrew school student or anything like that. but you get fascinated when you are a little bit of an outsider peering in and see um, some things that you don't know about. A buddy of mine has written a novel and he was describing that sometimes just to write a single paragraph, he will have had to have read an entire book that so much goes into the details that the reader has no idea about. And I'm wondering approximately if you were to even estimate how many hours of conversation research and perhaps how many books did it take to write this one book? Well, a lot. I did it all backwards in the sense that I got the idea for the book and I started writing it and I did my research after a draft of it was finished. But there was all those things that I was talking about. There was going to Israel. There was moving there for a year. There was, you know, really diving into these issues. And that's the thing. Like you go to Israel during 2000. I mean, we all remember what the 90s were like in America. I mean, it was Monica Lewinsky and like, you know, all these things that were very, it seems like big deals, but were very superficial. Right. And you went to Israel where there were all of these things that seemed like so much bigger. There was so much more like, you know, life and death conflict. Existential. And then it forced you to think about it a little bit more closely. So when you do that, you read the books about it. Like, you know, I spent a long time reading about Israel and the Holocaust and World War II and all of these things that, that obsessed me. And it's an unknown figure, the number that I went through before I came up with even the idea of the Lost Shuttle and then started writing the Lost Shuttle. It was probably hundreds of books. I just want to be clear on that, though, because I think that for many of us, when we're reading a book, we have no idea the hours put into creating this beautiful piece of literature and we read the book it's seamless it should be a fairly seamless experience for the end user and yet the guy who wrote it or the gal who wrote it put in so i mean i mean sweat over so many details and the fact that you just cited the idea of hundreds of books probably went into this one book and that's just to me that's mind-boggling and i just want to honor that for a moment that's what can go into a really good work of fiction. I agree with that. But I also think that life experience goes into all of these things. Of like, you know, that, and moving to Israel, I just met people that I hadn't ever met before. And I think it's one of the things that's good about being a reporter as mm-hmm. well, is that it forces you to really talk to people 
and engage them, not to know what their story is, but to learn their story and to actually hear it. I want to go into the writer's studio with you for a second. I remember once falling in love with a particular artist's work and I was invited into his studio and I expected it to be this beautiful Zen type of place with kind of music piping in and beautiful scents and perhaps some candles and just like this really gorgeous little sanctuary, a temple-like existence. It was the polar opposite. It was a mess. There was stuff on the (laughs) walls. There was, it was, it smelled disgusting. And I came to realize, oh my gosh, a birthing center for art is probably by nature, very messy. And I'm thinking about where you sat and wrote and how much hard work it is. And the idea that Stephen Pressfield, the author of Bagger Vance and also the War of Art, where he describes, hey, man, I get up every day, rain, sun, snow, no matter how I'm feeling, I write for four hours. The muse is not calling me. I keep writing and I keep writing. And I'm wondering if you could describe your surroundings, your process of writing, the discipline it required. Was it something like what Stephen Pressfield describes as just like, whether I feel like writing or not, I'm going to write and hope the muse shows up, but I'm going to put in the hours. What was it like for you? I am very much a believer that it is 99% perspiration. Look, one of the things that I will also say is that I'm a big believer that writing is editing. It's not even really writing it the first time. It You get something down on paper and then think about it and you rework it and then you think about it and you rework it again and you think about it and you rework it again. And that is always my process. So I'm a slob. (laughs) Like, you know, really, I mean, look at my hair, Adam. There's no way that there could be like a neat, well-kept person. This is a slob. I married a very neat person who constantly is threatening to throw out everything in my, in my, my little office. And I love her and I wouldn't change a thing about her, maybe that, but you know, she, she's a wonderful person. But I think that one of the things that worked against me was that for a long time, I took the, a sort of dilettante approach that the mood had to be right and the inspiration had to reach me and blah, 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 blah. And it took me forever to write anything. And actually, when I was working on it every day and like, you know, giving myself a few hours a day to actually think about it. There was no disruption there. Like, you know, then you were really thinking about it and thinking about it critically. Like you were thinking about your work in a way that you was like, well, what's working and what's not? Why am I stuck on this? Rather than just coming to it and hoping like, you know, I'm a very big believer that you have to put in a certain amount of time every day to uh, really think about it, to really work on it and to rewrite it and to just go over it and go over it and go over it until you really feel like you're, you'll know when you're done. And approximately, A, how much time was it? And B, did that also mean silencing your phone? Did that mean closing the door? Did that mean informing people in your life, hey, I'm not available during these times? <laughs> like, can you give me, give, me, give me the nuts and bolts? How much time and how did you protect yourself? I was bad about protecting myself and I'm still bad about that. The phone still does interrupt and intrude in, in horrible ways. I'm like, I can't shut off the internet because the truth is that when you're working, and you need a synonym, well, that's the easiest way to get one. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like it's much less of a distraction to just go to the internet and look that up than Open go to the bookcase and find the thistle and pull it down and blah, blah, blah. Generally, I think that that's okay. We all need Wikipedia now because that's just, you know, the way it is. 
Now, yeah, when you Wikipedia something, you do fall down these rabbit holes for shots. Sure. Two yep. hours. You're like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> I had to use these two hours for writing, and now I'm just reading about something so superficial. Now I know all about Willow. <laughs> like how he named the General Kale after Pauline Kale and Willow. Yeah, no, it can be sometimes a dark. Uh, totally. Hole. We've all been there. <laughs> but nevertheless, I got the idea for the book in 2009. So that is a long time ago now. Although the book came out more than a year ago at this point. I was working on it when I met my wife in 2011 and I finished a draft. My son was born in January of 2015. I finished a draft in 2014, late 2014. I sent it out to agents. So that's like, what, nine? From 2009 to 2014. So it took five years to write the first draft, which is a really, really long time. I sent it out to agents. I mentioned the agent that told me I had too many characters. Right. And she told me I had like other things too. She really did think about the book and she gave me a really good edit of it. She was like, you know, you really need to develop this part. You really need to sand down this part. And I thought about what she said and I thought she was right. And then my son was born and I was like, okay, I'll get to it. Okay, put it on hold two years almost. And then at the end of 2016, experienced the period where I really want to stay offline. And I just worked on it constantly. In about a year after that, I finished it. I sent it out to editors and to agents, the editors. So it was, you finished it around 2017. End of 2017, early 2018. Wow. And it takes that long. So a big part of this has been patience on your part. Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing other stuff in the meantime, so. But at the same time, hanging in there and not, I mean, I imagine there are many times that this beautiful book could have fallen through the cracks if you had let it. So I sent it out to, I think, three people and I got one nasty rejection. Like it was along the lines of, for first book, the writing has to be great and this is not great or something like that. It was along those lines to the point of like, wow. This is really good, but it requires too much work and I don't have the time to work on it with you. So good luck. And then there was this woman who was really encouraging about that. And sometimes that's something you need. I think that honesty is obviously critical. I think that there are a lot of people who don't get an honest reading from people and that hampers them. They don't see where their flaws are because they don't, they're not willing to face them. But it's also very important to like really believe in yourself and have the encouragement that is necessary and to fly with that encouragement to the right place. And it was very important to me. So she was a very big part of that. And yeah, encouragement and the impact of others is such a big deal. I'm wondering what is the best piece of advice you've ever received when it comes to writing fiction or writing in general? Look, I think that the best advice I got was from my mother, actually. My mother is also a writer and an editor. And she always said to me that the best thing that you could do to be a writer is to lead an interesting life. Great. It was on the money. This is when I was like applying to colleges and she was like, and I was like, I want to be a writer. I want to go to to school and all these other things. And she said to me, that's not going to help you be a writer. (laughs) She's like, you really want to be a writer? You should join the Merchant Marines or something like that. Right. (laughs) And so what what might constitute leading an interesting life from where you said, you just mentioned the Merchant Marines as a possibility. But I'm wondering, like, what else could a person do in your idea of leading an interesting life? 
I think that there were a number of things that I tried to do. I'm a happy person. I lived, I think, a good life. You know, when I graduated from college, I had been accepted into a graduate program and I was thinking of going to it. And I was like, you know what? I think a much better use of my time would be to go to someplace like Israel. And that's what I did. And I didn't really have an agenda or anything other than to live someplace differently and really learn a different culture than I had been accustomed to. And when I got back, I think a lot of writers choose the route of academia. And I think there's a lot to be said for it. But one of the things that I really valued about being a reporter was that I think you got to, as I think I mentioned this earlier, you got to speak to a lot of different people and you got to meet a lot of different people and learn their stories, not like assume their stories, if you're good at it anyway. And I got to live a little bit vicariously through them. And after the forward, I went to the New York Post and I was writing about real estate. And there was a a little bit about that that I was like, well, that seems a little bit of dull. But then you realize that this is the way people live and this is the way that neighborhoods develop and this is the way that the cities develop. And it started to become very interesting to me. And I started writing about food and I started writing about travel. And I wound up like going to Dubai and Poland and Italy and the Caribbean, just seeing things that I had never seen before. And it was in a very touristy way. I'm not going to dispute that. It was a very different thing than like living in Israel, which is what I did to actually try to visit so much of the world that you can. But there was something here about also seeing different things and raising different questions. Like you see things that you don't even realize that you're taking in. And that to me was a very formative experience. So I tried to do some of that and tried to be happy. That was another thing that I you know, really wanted to do. I wanted to meet interesting people and, and other things like that. Try to lead a good life. Don't sit around playing some Call of Duty or something like that my whole life. <laughs> right. So no, don't just be a consumer, be an active participant. Don't be just passively whiling away the hours. But I'm thinking also about the perspective with which you approached real estate. Somebody could just say, oh my gosh, I've been assigned to the real estate beat. How boring. Instead, you said, how fascinating. This is how people live. And I think that even started more fundamentally with the question of how could real estate be fascinating and how could this correspond with leading an interesting life for the sake of being a better writer? I'm wondering. Might that have been part of the thought process? I'm just wondering if that might have been baked into the way that you approached the real estate component of the New York Post. Well, I'm glad that that's the way I did look at it. I'm not sure it was conscious on all levels. But I'm not going to say that there wasn't at some point like a little bit of, uh, maybe this isn't right to do this to speak. There was some trials, I think, like where I was like, okay, oh, well, this is becoming more interesting to me. I remember I I had a friend who I was talking about with this when I first started. And he said to me, Max, he's actually a writer for the New Yorker now. He's like, Max, like real estate is the great epic saga of New York. And that was like one of these moments that like hit me like a thunderbolt. I was like, wow, that's so true. (laughs) You know, you see the life and death of the city. I mean, like, you know, I don't know if you've ever read Power Broker, the Robert Caro book about Robert Moses. Robert Moses was the true force in New York politics from like the beginning of the 20th century through the, like the 1960s. He was so much more powerful than any mayor, probably than any governor. And it was all through real estate. And it was all through, not all through real estate, but 
he understood these things. He understood the way people live and all these other things. And once you pick up that book, it's hard to put it down. It's one of the most fascinating things I've ever read. So I want to go to the decisions that you had to make while writing. There were, I imagine, so many decision points throughout the writing process, including the ending, where I imagine you had several possible endings on the table. I don't want to give away any spoilers, but I'm wondering, was there any pain in having to choose or I should say cut off an alternative? And did you have multiple trajectories in mind for the book, including multiple endings? that you had to actually just come to a place of peace around ultimately and move forward. I will make a confession. I was very fortunate that I found a really magnificent editor at HarperCollins to work with Tara Parsons. And Tara, when she bought the book, said to me, all right, we have some notes, but you know, nothing is nothing major. There were two things I was like, I really don't want to hear notes about the title and the ending. And I'm sitting there waiting to hear what her notes are. (laughs) First, I have to talk to you about the title. The original title was Terra Incognita. And she was like, I don't think so. (laughs) So you want to change that one. (laughs) And I loved the title Terra Incognita. I thought it was actually a very good one for this. And I still think it was a good one, but I lost that battle. And everybody around me was like, no, the launch title is better. And I got to tell you straight up, dude, I would not have chosen the book with that title of Terra Incognita. (laughs) Hey, okay. Yeah. And she said, and the ending. And I had a very dark ending, the original. And I gave it to my wife and she read it. It's a very morbid end. And I was like, <laughs> and, I, and I was like, no, it has to be a morbid end. I was like, you don't understand. This is the story of, of the Jews of Europe. This is the story of so many things that come to, you know, bad endings. Those are the endings that stay with you. Those are the endings that Pain you that you still think about years later. That's what I'm going. And so I gave it to my parents, and they were like, We love it. We love it. The ending is so bleak. And I was like, No, it has to be this ending. And Tara looks at it and she's like, You have to change the ending. And I was like, Well, I'm not married to it. <laughs> so actually, I'm being a little bit flippant here. I'll have to say this. To this day, I will die on Terra Incognita as better title. I will not die on the ending that I had. I think that Tara Parsons, my editor, was right about it in the final analysis. Funny that, that there's um, such a connection between her name and yeah. Tara. <laughs> Maybe that's what caught her attention originally. But Tara Incognita, I'm just trying to translate, that's land that people were unaware of. Is that what it means? Yeah, uncharted land. And, you know, it's a low Latin phrase. And I thought that it was evocative of mystery and that we were going someplace that was uncharted. And I like that. And I like that title. And some of it, you just don't know why you like something, but you just like it. It just landed with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then she said, you have to come. She didn't tell me what the title should be, but she was like, you have to change the titles. I remember reading a book about how Abraham Lincoln would craft his sentences and there's a musicality to his wording. And I'm guessing that Terra Incognita has a musicality to it that just really resonates with you very deeply. And I'm guessing that a lot of the writing that you wrote and rewrote, that you were probably attuned to the musicality of the phrases and the sentences themselves. Look, I think that the whole ballgame is like that connection to things that you can't quite understand. I don't know what makes writers that I respond to. Why is like a writer like Saul Bellow better 
than some other schlub writing about another. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, the plots aren't, of, of Bello aren't that great. They're sometimes very interesting and sometimes a little bit whatever, but then you have this writing that you're like, that I personally respond to in such a way that you can't explain. And the mystic chords of memory, Lincoln knew what how to, how to write it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that I did respond to that title. But in any event, to the ending, you know, one of the things that she said to me, which also I came to believe that she was right about, that it didn't have to be a happy ending. And I don't think it was a happy ending, but she was like that a morbid, overly dramatically, like almost gothic ending was wrong for this because there was so much playfulness in the tone and everything that came before it that it couldn't be Hamlet. It couldn't end like Hamlet with everybody on stage dying or something, you know, that it had to be different than that. By the way, and thanks a lot for right. ruining Hamlet for me. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Not everybody dies in Hamlet, right? It's <laughs> okay, I couldn't resist. <laughs> but anyway, that was, yes, that was her note. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought she might be right. And I spent a really long time thinking about what could be, you know, the right ending to this. And getting to the point where I was comfortable with it. And when I finally got there, I was like, you know what? This is better than what I had originally. This actually makes more sense. And so I think that that comes back to a little bit to the perspiration question, like really thinking it through, not just saying, well, it has to be a bleak ending because that's the thing that stays with you. But it's a thing that has to make sense and you have to really get to there. You have to work to get to that ending. Sure. So some of the people listening might be aspiring writers themselves. And I'm wondering, what is a characteristic that you think would serve a person who really wants to become a good writer? I think that the biggest thing that I would advise is to really get to in touch with what you think of as good writing. I mentioned Saul Bellow. One of the things that I think was hardest for me as a writer is figuring out what I liked. And I know that sounds kind of crazy because it should be kind of instinctive, but I don't think it is instinctive, but embracing that and really thinking why I like something, you know, is a, is a hard thing. I spent a lot of my, a lot of years reading books that I was told were great books and that I was like, oh yeah, yeah, this is a great book and not really liking them. And I think that everybody does that to a certain extent, but actually knowing the ones that I really responded to, that I really loved, that were the ones that were, that really spoke to me and maybe not even for the best reasons. I think that there are books out there that are probably better than some of the ones that I love, but just, they leave you cold in some way. To be a writer, you have to be really in touch with yourself and you have to be in touch with what you really like and not what people tell you to like. And I think that's hard. I think that's not as easy as it sounds. Like you really have to spend a lot of time reading and thinking about these books and thinking about why you respond to them in ways that you didn't others. I think there are a lot of literary critics. I mean, there are so many literary critics that I loathe and despise. And like literary criticism in general is something that I really hate. But, you know, if you find good criticism, if you find accessible criticism, criticism that's not like talking over your head and being pretentious, but actually really speaking in a way that you love, that can really help you. And like, I don't always agree with Pauline Kael when I read her about every movie that she ever saw. In fact, I disagree with her most of the time. She's such a good writer, 
And she explained her reactions in a way that I found so valuable. Harold Bloom is another critic that I thought was, I don't agree with him, his taste in everything, but when you read his writing on Shakespeare and it's such a, a joy. And yeah, just being comfortable with yourself is such a hard thing to do, but it's so necessary for a writer. I love that idea of getting to know your voice through what appeals to you, which writers really connect with your psyche. And I'm guessing the other piece is just writing a ton that for, I'm guessing for every 300 pages that you write for a novel, there have probably been 3000 pages that had to be written in order to kind of identify your voice. As we kind of close and you're nodding, as I say this, is there anything I should have asked Max that I didn't? The, the only thing that I, I would say, just like you're talking about writing, the writers, I think that so much of the reading experience is about the joy of reading something and reading something that you enjoy. Those are the good books. It's not a nutritious, salubrious meal. I think that they're decadent desserts. I think that every piece of art should be something to be really enjoyed. And the only thing that I always aspired to with this book was that it would be something that everybody would enjoy, that it would be something that people would have a good time with. And so that was my great purpose in this book. Well, I got to tell you straight up, Max, I loved every page of this book. I was smiling. I was loving the characters. I could see them. It was a full bodied experience getting to read The Lost Shtetl. It was everything I'd hoped it would be. And getting to know you has been as well. I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your process with my listeners. And I can't wait to see what comes next from your pen. <laughs> well, thank you, Adam. I really appreciate it. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. <laughs>